Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. this episode, we were lucky enough to have Dr. Ryan Martin on the show. Dr. Martin is an orthopedic surgeon at the Foothills Medical Center in Calgary, Alberta. We talked to him about what it was like to be a sports doctor for the Calgary Stampeders and the extensive preparation that he does for going into the operating room. Dr. Martin, thank you so much for joining us on Cold Steel today. We really appreciate your time. And for those of us who don't know you as well, could you just give us a bit of a background about yourself, where you grew up and what your training pathway was? Sure, I'd love to. Well, thanks for having me. It's a it's a pleasure. Um, I grew up in Ottawa, um, and uh, my background was uh, uh, grew up, you know, interested in athletics and, and mostly hockey. Growing up playing hockey and soccer, but really got into hockey. Um, got drafted. Uh, was playing junior for a bit, and and uh, tore my ACL during that. And it was kind of during that whole process where I. Uh, was approached by my physics teacher and kind of, you know, turned my direction towards medicine in the sense that she, like many orthopods, uh, an injury sparks interest into into medicine, and of course that puts you into the uh, sports medicine orthopedic interest. And uh, so it was after that where I basically got interested in in ortho and and uh, set my uh, sights on uh, med school. Did med school in Ottawa. And uh, that's where I met my wife, who's uh, um, guy who does an infertility. And uh, we wanted to move out west and wanted to enjoy the skiing and outdoor lifestyle. She's She was uh, into outdoors a lot more than I was, and she's gotten me into it as well. And so we came out west and really enjoyed the collegiality of the you know, surgical group here and, and kind of that balance between academics during the weekdays and and the being accepting of enjoying the leisure and outdoor pursuits on the weekend. And that kind of uh, uh, led to our love of, of Western Canada. And uh, following that, uh, I did a um, fellowship in New York City for a, a year in trauma at the uh, Hospital for Special Surgery and uh, enjoyed that. Did a sports medicine fellowship in Toronto the year after and following that, got the job here in Calgary, where I'm uh, currently working, doing trauma and, and a sports medicine kind of knee lig- ligament reconstruction practice. It's interesting. I think from from the outside, it seems like sports medicine and trauma would go together quite naturally. But 
I, I think that's probably an erroneous statement. Hey, it's, is it that common? And and there is clearly big differences between those two groups of, of, of patients. They almost almost opposite ends of the spectrum. No, it is. I mean, I think you look at the patients, um, and then you look at the pathology. I think from a trauma perspective, it's you know as much as we say orthopedic trauma surgery, the majority of the time we're, we're concentrating about fractures and. And we get impressive x-rays and CT scans and, and by and large majority of the trauma surgeons are concentrating about restoring the anatomy of the fracture and, and sports medicine knows from the opposite side. So, you know, I talk with the patients and, and, and a bit, but it just from a pathology perspective, sports is, is mainly a little bit more concentrated about the soft tissues. And uh, oftentimes the trauma surgeon is ignoring the, um, soft tissues and then sometimes the sports medicine surgeons you know ignoring or, or not addressing the uh the bone uh issues and and it's becoming a little bit more common and i i, I think it's a it's a great merger of practices um and it's it's bringing a little bit of a recognition of to optimize outcomes in trauma surgery or fracture surgery you need to understand to have first you know whether there's a ligamentous issue that's going on that's going to affect the ultimate outcome of the fracture and then when to intervene and how to intervene and and the principles of fixation are 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 different uh understanding ligament repair and reconstruction there's certain principles that um are not as commonly employed uh, from a trauma surgery practice and then you're absolutely right Chadley. you get the follow-up clinics i have I have my elective outpatient soft tissue knee reconstructive clinics, and then I have my trauma clinics. And um, the uh, patient population can be different. Uh, sometimes there's there's crossover, uh, and uh, the expectations um, are are different. But in some respects, they're similar. That at one point this person was normal and as you see all the time as well, something happens and then that life has changed. And that happens in sports as it does in a car accident. Um, so I think it's, it's uh, fulfilling and I think it, it's broadening the uh, perspective of both trauma. And then to go back to the sports aspect, um, the reconstruction of bone and not being scared to address bone to offload ligaments is, uh, is is critically important as well. So, you know, I think both uh, gain from having the other. You know, I, I, I love that description. And I, I think it, it hits home with me in particular, you know, as you insinuate, because of in, in my life, the, the HPB and then the general surgery trauma side. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things over the years that um, have really I've taken tried to take from one in, into the other and vice versa. And I think it's made me hopefully better at, at both um, for a lot of the, you know, different content, but same conceptual reasons that you're, that you're pointing out. And, you know, one of your, uh, one of your partners um, uh, told me recently that in addition to, you know, all, all the talents that you have that uh, amongst that group, no one knows the literature as well as, as well as you do. And I, I always thought, uh, you know, that's super high praise from that individual who, who I won't out in public for you. But, um, you know, that was a really big tip of the hat. So I, I'm curious how you manage um, this massive flow of information in really two super subspecialty fields. Um, 
in, in 2020? What, what do you read? Uh, how do you read? When do you read? And how do you integrate that into your, your daily practice? I think it's, yeah, it's a great question. I can't, you know, it's, it's an honor that somebody said it to me, said that about me. I don't necessarily think of myself like that, but I, I, I do read the literature um, a lot and try to stay up to date. I'm, I'm somebody that doesn't feel comfortable doing something surgically if I, if I, you know, if I haven't read something about that in, in the last kind of six, six months. Um, and, you know, I definitely want to be prepared before going in. With respect to the literature, it's interesting because you know you can you can know the literature. I think to, to to different extents, and I think a lot of my colleagues know certain aspects of the literature a lot stronger than I do. Um, and I, I'd separate those, you know, from the large clinical outcome studies and and surgical practice. That's something that you know I I I read. I'm interested in, and uh, I'll follow those. But I I'm somebody who certainly believes in in and my passion or interest is, is, is about mastering the techniques and surgical techniques. And I think if we can really concentrate on the details, um, a lot of the times the, these large trials, it's hard with surgery to really incorporate how those details are being addressed. And, and for me, I have a lot of interest in and improving my technique surgically to try to improve my outcomes and understanding the mechanics of the joint that that I'm working on. And uh, so that's a large portion of the literature that I read is to to keep me updated uh, on that and to make sure that I'm always trying to push um, my like surgical abilities. And just as a general rule, I have a a paper a day. So I, I will, I get in early, so I'm definitely a morning person. And uh, in addition to planning for a surgery, I, you know, something I believe in strongly that I take a long time to plan every one of my surgeries. And there's often times, as, as you know, when you get a complex case or even sometimes a routine case, you you know, a question comes to mind and I'll look that up and, and get a paper. And I try to try to get a paper a day and, yeah, that, uh, and build off that. That's a great suggestion. Um I mean, you, you, you always see that in hyper performers like, like you, right? Like, you know, it's, it's about being organized and it's about, um, you know, sticking to a routine, whether it's a pro athlete or whether it's a surgeon probably. Um, and I, I think that's a great piece of advice for sure. Uh, w- one of the other things that you do that kind of fascinates all of us from, from the outside is, is your work with professional athletes in particular on the sports medicine side. And, I don't think it's a secret that you're, you know, one of the one of the stamps docs and and do a lot of work over there with them. Um, maybe at the at the risk of uh, a too much self disclosure, um, like you, uh, I, I played major junior hockey and then university hockey, and I always assumed as I entered medical school I would be a sports medicine doc. And I had a little different experience. Same thing, you know, what stopped me was a knee injury, but. When I was I was living in Vancouver at the time, and I went and hung out with some UBC uh, sports med folks that that I'm sure you know, and I I loved these guys to the very end of the earth. But I I looked at that patient population and went, oh, these guys are sort of these pros are all princesses, and the psychology mm-hmm. of that, despite being driven, um, you know, to get back to the field or get back to the ice, mm-hmm. which was really interesting and and attractive. Uh, I sort of went the other way, and I, um, I, I, I'm curious how you ended up doing that, um, and and how that came about, and 
and how these pro athletes, um, how, how you deal with them and how you interact with them, both physically and psychologically. What, what does that world look like to those of us that are ignorant to it? Yeah, I mean, I can certainly understand your, you know, your approach and, 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 and the problems that you had with it. There's certainly different uh, to deal with. Um, I think I find a huge amount of enjoyment for it and, and, and with it. And I think I had a similar experience to you, but I probably, you know, drew, um, uh, you know, I saw some, I guess a different challenge in it. And I think there, are, there are people that say, well, you can treat, treat a pro athlete similar to anybody else. But, uh, you know, I think there's the reality of it is that they are different. Uh, there's many intricacies that I find interesting that are, are, that uh, play into your decision-making of the pro athlete that just doesn't exist with, with somebody that, that doesn't revolve around making their living playing sports. Like, you know, you have to uh, incorporate aspects like where they are in the season and the psychology of that and, and where they are in their contract here. And, and um, you know, what, how important is it for them to return and, um, so I think I, I found these challenges and I think it's, it, it's, it's interesting because it's almost a skill set in itself. Like we, we say sports medicine and as I think myself is, you know, I, one of my interests is, is trauma surgery and, and ligament reconstruction and just generally trauma around the knee. And then the sports medicine practice is separate. And the, the sports side, when we say we're, you know, sport medicine, orthopedic surgeon, is is understanding how to deal with the athlete and understanding that psychology and and just that in itself is a skill set that i think i've uh, initially i lacked in i'm gaining in um but there's always areas of improvement and i find that it's the more i learn the more interest is more interesting because it just adds another set of variables that you're that you need to um incorporate into your treatment plan i mean that the the other side of it is is how much i've learned with dealing with them like no one's going to challenge your reconstruction more and you there, there's less room for error surgically so it's it's a time where you really have to put your best product not that you know i don't you know don't try to put the best product or the you know, the best surgery uh, for every one of my patients, but it's it's that the patient that you know other patients don't have the um, ability to spend all day rehabbing their knee afterwards. So you really get to see what the potential is uh, following your re reconstructions, and I find it um, uh, that very uh, rewarding. You know when it's successful, but it's also you know when it's not successful, you learn a lot. It's a, incredibly challenging. And then the other aspect that we, you know, I think a lot of people go into sports medicine thinking that they're going to be the savior and they're going to be able to do anything and return these athletes to, to play that. Um, and the reality is that sometimes injuries are suffered. Some of, some of them are quite severe where there's almost a skill set in itself is, is breaking that news to the athlete that their season's over, potentially their career's over and, and how to do that, the breaking bad news, which we learn in med school, but breaking bad news to a pro athlete is is a variable that we don't learn in in med school and and that's been something that's uh, it's been 
you know, kind of rewarding to, um, to be involved with. And, and I enjoy it. It, it also, I think, you, you know, you, your major junior experience, the, you know, and trauma surgery in itself, one of the reasons I'm sure you enjoy and I enjoy is the um, teamwork and how, you know, oftentimes you and I are having to um, uh, you know, tackle a patient uh, uh, and, and develop a plan together. And, and that's similar with, with sports medicine is that you're involving everybody from, you know, athletic trainers to their strength and conditioning coach to coaches, management agents, and there's multiple people that are, are participating in the decision uh, for this person's care. And it's, I, I find it uh, interesting and, and kind of an engaging challenge. Yeah, you know, I, I'm so glad you, you described that so eloquently, because it's it's a fascinating thing to think about and to, to look at from the outside. And probably the truth is, you know, you're right. It's different to tell someone that they're going to die of their pancreas cancer because you can't get it out. But, you know, that happens privately in a quiet clinic with you and one or two family members, maybe, and the patient. But, you know, when you fail, not that you ever have, but if yeah. you fail, that's probably on the front page of the news that the quarterback is in trouble. Um, and I imagine that's a whole different, not only type, but level of pressure, quite frankly. Well, yeah, you get you get the media, but then now it's social media. So your incisions are are on social media. Your X rays are on social media. Um, your your work, like I've seen it, and uh, so it, you know everything you do is 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 for show and and, and open to um, to comments. And and I find it interesting because you you know it supports that every single thing you do should be well planned and, and tried to be executed as best you can. Um, but it, uh, it's, it does make a difference. So I think for those that say you should treat the athlete the same, you want to obtain the same outcome, but it's certainly not the same um, treat, treatment. It's not, it's not, you know, there are differences. Yeah, I know exactly. The, the methodology and the psychology of it, as you point out, is fundamentally different. You know, again, at, at the risk of disclosing too much, um, when I was in Indiana doing my HPB and transplant fellowship, um, of course, that's where uh, a pretty famous cyclist was treated for his metastatic prostate cancer. And I, I, I was talking to the neurosurgeon that did his, his crany. Um, and the, the, the recount of that interaction between that person and the, and the surgeon was, was fascinating. You know, the, the person, uh, uber famous, uber powerful, um, comes in and sort of says, are you good enough to be operating on my, on me? And the answer from that really senior, really superb human being neurosurgeon was, let me make this clear. I'm better at my job than you are at riding a bike. And I, you know, I, that, that sounds flippant and, and funny, but, uh, you know, having got to know him over the course of a year, year and a bit there, um, that's probably exactly what that athlete needed to hear, uh, to feel confident and comfortable with what was going to go on. And I'm sure he, except by all accounts, he, he nailed it completely. And um, that, like you point out, that psychology is, is so fascinating at that elite performance driven level. Those are no, different absolutely. human beings, eh? Absolutely. And I, I think what that's, it is one of the, the unique things too, is that oftentimes um, you, you're seeing somebody that has seen 
other specialists. You know, it, it, when it's not an a incredibly acute injury, that there's oftentimes you're just one of the surgeons that they're getting an opinion from. And uh, so it's interesting because that's certainly one approach is to try to instill uh, confidence in the athlete. But some sometimes that's not the approach you want to do. I mean, right. there's times where you want to be realistic and and you do get this approach where the surgeons might want to operate on somebody's famous. I think these some of these athletes are at risk of of being operated on just because right. of who they are. Uh, and certainly not when you have a metastatic brain, but uh, or pancreatic. But when you're dealing with orthopedic issues, there's a lot of gray uh, areas in orthopedics. And and when somebody famous walks into an office, um, you, you know the the tendency I think for some people would be to to you know want to operate it not you know it's probably I'm probably not using the right words but I think one of the things that I've really tried to be cognizant of, of is that I'm not recommended surgery for for who that person is and um, in trying to sell them on an operation and and suggest that I'm any better than somebody else. I mean, this might be my opinion of what's best for that particular person. Um, but I think that is a, another unique aspect of athlete care is this uh, uh, is that they are at uh, risk of, of being offered an operation um, or promised an outcome when it in reality may not be the, uh, the thing that's likely to occur. Now that's uh, that's so well stated. You, you know, it's funny you you touched on it a few minutes ago about what we learn in medical school and in residency and our fellowships and what we don't, and maybe how you know I clearly you're such a humble guy and you're probably being overly humble, but how we learn as we practice for a while and and you're right, like breaking bad news and interacting with those folks and when to say and who to push and who not to, and uh, it all comes with experience and it's. Like, don't you think it's it's amazing how much you do learn from the nuance side of things in your job? And sometimes you get it wrong and you have to apologize, but oftentimes you get it right and it just seems to get better and better as you go. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, I know you, you know, when you, you take pride in your technique and, and you're trying to master your technique and get better at the surgery and then you realize that, wow, there's so much of the outcome is dependent on the, um, the yes. soft side of of. Yeah. of medicine you've given so much great advice i think for new trainees and and new grads uh, but i'm going to be selfish and uh and pick you a bit more deeply on this uh just because i i just finished my residency and i'm doing my fellowship and, you know you've been practicing for a while now but do you have any advice for freshly graduated uh surgeons heading into their fellowships or, or starting their first jobs what are sort of your tips and trips tricks for getting the most out of their fellowship and then into practice that's a great question i think and i yeah i think it's uh some of the advice that i give i kind of alluded to earlier with the i think surgery is different than some areas of medicine uh, especially when it comes to these large clinical trials and the outcomes that are um that are uh, derived from them is that a lot of the stuff is is technique based and I don't think we concentrate uh, as much on technique I think a lot of the outcomes do depend on who's doing the operation and I'm a huge advocate towards concentrating and mastering and, and constantly trying to improve your your technique so I do suggest challenging dogma but also being you know 
humble enough that it's it's not likely that you're that you should challenge dogma enough that, that to expect that your outcome is going to be you know, drastically different than something that that occurs uh, or has been accepted as dogma in your specific surgical specialty. The other things that I really have been um, quite passionate about is 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 objectifying and, and trying to measure your outcomes, your own personal outcomes, because of course you can follow things in, in the literature, but what works in your hands, and there's no better way than if you can collect your your data and being objective with it, not just saying, oh, you know, the last five I did, we've always heard that. We've heard that from numerous people through our practice, and oftentimes it, that's completely inaccurate. So I. I try to collect objective outcomes on most of my patients. Uh, all my soft tissue knee reconstructions, I collect, you know, patient reported outcomes. I try to try to uh, collect stress, objective stress outcomes so that I can follow my outcomes. And keeping surgical journals, I, you know, I'm looking here on my desk, I've got eight, eight volumes of journals that I started since, since practice and um, that I take note of my technique, um, take note of the literature, go to the literature and, and constantly try to improve and push yourself. Um, I think there's a tendency of, of wanting to be comfortable in the operating room, especially as a new new trainee or sorry, a new uh, uh, grad. There's going to be times where most of these operations, there's going to be some aspect that makes you nervous, that it's going to be uncomfortable. And, and uh, I suggest that, you know, try to maintain that through your practice and throughout your career. Because I think if you're too comfortable operating, then, you know, maybe your incision is too big and or the technique is too simple. And uh, so I'd suggest to push yourself surgically um, continuously to improve to uh, your techniques. But also don't try to automatically make your or improve your techniques in multiple aspects at once. Like to take it in stages or else it, it just becomes too overwhelming. <laughs> And uh, lastly, is my big, big push is get is be prepared before you do that operation. Plan it out, think about it, and oftentimes, when you prepare for the operation, I think that is when a lot of the questions come. That certainly for me, that's where I get most of my questions that I try to look for and, and find that journal of the day is is when I'm preparing for that operation. And. Uh, with trauma surgery, we're often planning fracture surgery. We get to go through CT scans. We get get to draw out, or I personally enjoy the the drawing out of fracture and trying to visualize it to fix it. And and uh, a mentor of mine once said, "If you can't if you can't draw it, you can't fix it." And um, so just just maintaining that constant drive to improve yourself and and the journals is is great. I find because there are often operations that you don't do as frequently as you'd like and you finish it and you feel confident you learn that you've learned something through that operation and then it's the next time you do it you're thinking oh great what I, you know i remember doing this and i remember something about this and and you just can't recall whereas if you write it down you can always go back to it and you just build upon it and then i think it's a really good area of, of growing your practice I want to drill down on a couple of things that you said. I think one of the things is um, about your collecting outcomes. When you say you collect outcomes, does that mean like do you have uh, your own set of uh, 
uh, your own database where you're keeping track of this kind of stuff? Do you have a nurse take, uh, you know, recording things uh, for you? Uh, how does that incorporate into your workflow? Because I think many physicians and surgeons would like to track their outcomes, but in actual practice, struggle to do so because it's onerous and time-consuming, and they don't have a good way of building it into their workflow. So how do you uh, do that? Yeah, I kind of built it in through my practice, through my EMR as I um, as I came back. And, and uh, so before a patient comes to clinic, I have uh, a box that's called an intake form where I click off what, what outcome score I want that patient to, to fill out. And I'm not so much doing it to, to potentially, uh, you know, it's not really for research purposes. It's just that you know, for instance, with, with knee ligament re- reconstruction, depending on what reconstruction you've done, there's certain certain validated outcome scores that you can collect. And uh, and um, so they fill those out in the waiting room. And so I'll have that data. And I can also, you know, one of the things with orthopedics that I guess is a different than some surgical spe- specialties is that we don't often optimize we're often putting things in and, and our evidence of what we put in is is often there in a footprint in an x-ray or for me uh, you know a scope scope picture of where my tunnels are for ligament reconstruction let's just say so when i see that patient and i examine them and, and i might get a certain laxity exam i can then go back in my emr and reference where i put that tunnel you know how their their outcomes have have uh, trended so I, I know there's lots of us in practice that that look at as the group, but I'm certainly somebody who has really focused on on really de- in detail looking at each individual case and trying to draw some examples. Of course, you're at you're at the sometimes you can overemphasize certain aspects just based on that one case, but that's just really how I've how I've approached it. The other thing I wanted to pick up on is the whole preparation thing, and I think I've, uh, I, you know, I appreciated that a bit as a, 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 you know, as a senior resident, as a chief resident, but I think even more now as a fellow, you really started to realize like how important it is to prepare for the OR. Like, you know, we sort of think that the staff guy has, uh, you know, knows the operation perfectly, and they just come into the OR and and they're just ready. But I think in reality, now that I've sort of had the chance to talk, speak with my staff as a fellow, you, you actually start to realize how much more time they spend um, reviewing CT scans, reviewing the patient's medical history, like really understanding exactly what's going on. And, and, and as you say, almost like drawing it out and, and picturing it and mentally visualizing it before they do the operation. Can you break down in detail, like when you say you're preparing for an operation, I know it, it's a little perhaps different in orthopedics than, than perhaps in general surgery, but in broad principles, when you're preparing yourself for the OR, like let's say when you were in fellowship uh, versus now, what does that preparation look like and, and how do you sort of visualize things? Well, it's interesting because the whole being prepared for, for cases really, you know, have been built into me on multiple mentors of mine i mean buckley is a huge um planning dr buckley here in in calgary is a huge uh, advocate for planning trauma surgery and then i went and worked with um my mentor dr helfit in um, new york at hss and and if you didn't have a surgical plan on on the uh, 
all. Uh, there's you would there's no aspect of that surgery that you were going to partake in. And so he would he built in that kind of belief of getting of getting prepared. Um, so the aspects for me is is that I you know with with orthopedic preparation most of the soft tissue stuff that I get to do I have an MRI of an X-rays and and um, so I sit down I come in early uh, that's where I plan my operations I have coffee I have music going. And I'm looking through that MR and X-ray in detail, and I'm I'm drawing them out, and uh, measuring all the angles, and, and making sure that I've, I'm trying to to um, uh, try to take in every variable. I before every case, I and then I write a problem list, and this is these are kind of the what I anticipate encountering uh, during the operations, and and being able to write down the problem list is re you know as you gain more experience your ability to predict that problem list becomes right, more and more accurate. But trying to predict where you're going to run into problems is uh, has been a huge help for me. And, um, and then drawing things out also brings out these issues that I didn't plan when I just, sorry, that I didn't encounter, I didn't think about when I just was trying to plan in my head. You know, I first came back and almost felt it, um, you know, not it, not as a weakness or anything, but when you have this detailed plan on the board, I think some people might think, wow, he has to plan about everything. <laughs> and um, so I tried to hide it. Now it's, it's something that I just put up and it, it's part of the, just what every operation I, I take part in is part of this, part of the step. It's amazing. I mean, again, it's just, highlights how much preparation and planning um, I think the experienced and the the high performer really does I mean the the military uses that the the five P's right prior planning prevents poor performance uh, as, their, as their acronym and I think that's just a, a, a tangible example of what that looks like in the operating room well I was just gonna say I mean we drew on on the pro athlete before but you, you know another thing that that I've kind of learned is it is is I've you know, been able to, to be on the sidelines for some larger sporting events. And, and something that really stuck with me uh, was earlier on in my career, I was covering a, a game as the traveling uh, doc for the stance when they were playing the, uh, we're, we're playing Ottawa. And it was an overtime game. So it was late and it probably past midnight and we're, we're on the bus. And what, what happens? You get on the bus, you fly the charter flight and you board the charter flight and you fly home and you you know, get home three or four in the morning. And so it was an overtime loss. And the first thing that Bo Levi Mitchell did, he was sitting a couple seats ahead of me. The first thing, as soon as he got on the bus, there was no chatting. There was nothing. He sat, sat down, got an iPad from the coach and went, started going through his plays. And he actually wasn't on close, close by on the, on the flight home. And, and basically till three in the morning, he was still on that iPad discussing with the coach, going through everything and, 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 and going through their errors and what they could have done better and improving till three in the morning. And I'm, I'm looking at that. And of course you, you get to learn that, you know, we're the same, that we're trying to master what we do. Our technique is a little bit different and our environment's a little bit different, but it's still the same thing. We're trying to improve our, our, our set. And so I learned a lot from that one event. 
That's a, that's a great story, Ryan. You know, you know I, there's a, a hemorrhage control course that that we run in Canada on the general surgery side of things, and um, it's a, essentially a video based course called Bloody Simple, and and uh, I think it's done really well, and it continues to grow. But one of the things that we we talk about in the in the course, and one of the pictures we show is a, a famous painting or picture of, of Peyton Manning uh, during preseason, and he's got his ankle in the in the tub. Uh, because it was injured, he's got his, uh, you know, his, his Denver Broncos helmet on. So he's listening to the offensive coordinator uh, um, calling the plays, and then he's got the iPad and he's watching it. And um, you know, it, sure enough, I think we all know that he's he's sort of perceived anyway as the master of preparation and of of the intellectual component of of quarterbacking. But you know, that was preseason, and he was injured, and he was physically doing rehab on his ankle, and he was still preparing and still visualizing and I, I think we can learn a heck of a lot from from pro athletes and that that process and we you know sort of your your underlying probably assertion is across surgery in general we really don't do enough of that right I mean how many how many journals do we read that this surgery doesn't work I mean we have it in orthopedics that you know for a certain fracture you should or should not operate or or for a certain um you know, that's just one example or certain ligaments you should or should not. We don't talk about the variability in, in surgeon, just just what variables have you taken into the, the when you're before you got to the operating room and then how you're carrying out your task. And uh, I agree. I think, uh, you know, I try to I almost rate every surgery I do and internally and how well it went. That's that's an outcome that, you know, obviously you don't want to you don't want to show everybody, but it's something that you keep internally and, and you can kind of track that to how well the patient does. Um, but no, you're completely right. I think there's, there's tons of, I think we can, we should be humbled to the, the fact that um, most of our operations, we can continue to improve. on. Before we started the show, you were uh, telling us a little bit about your knees simulator which I think is, again, an extension of, of your mentality about being prepared, coming to the operating room. Can you tell us a little bit about what uh, you've developed and how that kind of came about? Yeah, well, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's been a huge team effort. Um, early on in my practice, I kind of um, was introduced to a group uh, at the University of Cal Calgary, um, and one of the professors is, is Carolyn Anglin. And uh, she's a biomedical engineer that's trying to, to develop a bone material that, that was accurate from a tactile perspective um, to simulate surgery. And uh, we kind of got discussing and then that grew with, you know, obviously I've alluded to my, one of my passions is, is, is maximizing your preparation prior to getting to the operation. And, and I saw a huge opportunity to build an ability to to make an arthroscopic tactile simulator. I think from a surgical education perspective, there's a lot of, of in, a lot of resources, I guess, R&D going to try to maximize virtual training. And I, I think that's a great, great aspect. And we've relied upon cadaveric training um, in orthopedics um, and I'm sure other surgical specialties as well. But you don't know what you're getting with the cadaver. They're often old, which is not who you operate on when you're doing a sports medicine ligamentous surgery practice. And they're mainly arthritic, which, you know, you're, that's what you're trying to prevent. And so it didn't accurately simulate the environment that we were doing these techniques in. And so with that, it's been five-year venture. I'm now the, the 
the chief medical officer of it's called Amylate Biomodels. And what what we've tried to build is a is a, an environment that uh, replicate replicates the tactile environment of operating. So we we've made a, a knee positioner to try to position the knee like you would when you're repairing a meniscus or doing an ACL, and then the bone material um, making it accurate the meniscus feel of when you repair a meniscus and um, having something. And so I've had the benefit of having of having those in my office that I get to play around with different techniques and, and see and if I tension the ligament at this range or if I drill a tunnel a little bit off in this direction, what it ends up doing. And so that's been a huge um, you know benefit for my own kind of selfishly, my own development as a surgeon. Uh, but I strongly believe that before we introduce new techniques, which is a whole other issue, I think, in surgery is like, where's that boundary of when you should be practicing it before you go into the patients and when you're actually doing it for the first time. But I think before we, we do that, we should have access to these relatively low cost uh, models that allow us to, to uh, rep, you know, rep out uh, before we, before we do. And, you know, going back to the professional athlete, you know, um, you know, the golfer, golfers, the, you know, the quarterbacks, you know, how many balls are they throwing in practice before they do it in game time? Whereas surgeons, we, we haven't had that uh, ability in the past. And uh, I think it's something simulation and, and being prepared and maximizing that before you get to the operating room is, is, uh, is the future. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.